everyone, it's Alex Rand from the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast team. Today's episode is something very special indeed, and I'm just, just kind of getting over it myself. Um, it is an honour to have none other than the legend that is Andrew Lloyd Webber with me today. Lord Lloyd Webber, who I'm sure you all agree needs no introduction, um, is best known as one of the world's finest composers and impresarios of musical theatre. Many of his musicals have spanned for decades, with The Phantom of the Opera recent, uh, recently celebrating its 35th anniversary in Broadway and 36th in London. Congratulations for that, by the way, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> when it closes in April this year, it will have been Broadway's longest-running musical for a number of decades, which is completely impressive. He has received a number of accolades, including a knighthood in 1992, a peerage for services to the arts, Six Tonys, three Grammys, an Academy Award, seven Olivier Awards, and the list goes on. That makes him one of a select group of artists with EGOT status. Emmy, Grammy, um, Grammy, sorry, Oscar and Tony winners. His company, The Really Useful Group, is one of the largest theatre producers around the world. He also owns six West End theatres, including the iconic Theatre Royal Drury Lane and the London Palladium. Lloyd Webber is passionate about the importance of musical education and diversity in the arts. The Andrew Lloyd Webber Foundation provides 30 performing arts scholarships every year for talented students with financial need, and it supports a range of projects such as the Music in Secondary School Trust and the Commissioning Research into Diversity in Theatre. Above all, he is a fellow pre enthusiast and avid art collector, and he has been crucial in the preservation of many pre works, as well as the public and critical revival of pre as a whole. Andrew, it's absolutely wonderful to meet you and speak with you today. Thank you so much well, for coming along. Well, thank you. Thank you. So how did you discover the pre then, and why are you so fascinated by them? Well, I guess pretty easy to answer that. Um, I was uh, at school at Westminster, and um, I've always loved architecture and um, from from the very word go. I mean, I, uh, I, I love, you know, buildings from, I mean, a really early age. I mean, uh, one of the Dean of Westminster just recently dug out a letter I wrote to him when I was five years old about the state of the Abbey fabric. And uh, <laughs> when I sent a postal order with my pocket money to help restore it. And, you know, it, I say it's been something there, but I was in school at Westminster. And one of the things that, um, really intrigued me was that um, a couple of very important Victorian architects worked on the building, you know, John Lapra Pearson and uh, Geo Bodley. And the glass that Bodley commissioned for the South Transept of Westminster was Victorian. And of course, you could have uh, in the Abbey, you know, and it, it, you could see the medieval glass compared with the um, Bodley um, commissioned glass. And I kept thinking to myself, um, wow, I mean, this is really, really good news. And combined with the fact that we had uh, in my house, we had a prefect um, who loved Victorian buildings and things. And there was a little group of us who became really interested in Victorian architecture. And um, in, a, in fact, his name was John House, and he became you know, very, very, I mean, he's unfortunately dead now, but he was an incredible um, Force in art and became actually very interested in in French uh, French painting actually I think twentieth century but um, but he loved Victorian art and I went round then I mean church after church after building after building and of course um, the one thing that emerged was the names of various artists who worked in these buildings and of course one found all the time cropping up 
Burne Jones, and um, and and of course Rossetti and Ford Maddox Brown and others, you know, who worked on stained glass a lot of the time. And so um, it was a pretty quick hop, skip, and a jump down to the Tate Gallery, and uh, which was down the road from school. And uh, there, I, you know, obviously had a pretty good quick education in pre-Raphaelite art. And the thing that always sort of really came home to me was, you know, that you know, our art teacher, our art master at Westminster hated the pre-Raphaelites <laughs> and loaded them with a vengeance. Uh, so that was good red rags to a ball. So one could keep me writing essays saying, you know, frankly, that, you know, the all greats were absolutely useless compared with Millet or Burne Jones or whatever. So that really annoyed him. So I, I really rather like that. Um, but what I couldn't understand, um, and I kept saying to this art master, explain one thing to me. I kept saying, why is it that when I go to the Tate Gallery, the pre-Raphaelite gallery is the one that is always the most popular? And he's what well, because it's sort of second division art and it's sort of, you know, just popular taste and everything. And I said, well, I mean, okay, but in fact is people, people love it. And, mm. um, and I, anyway, I mean, of course, and the other thing I, I guess was is that... Um, uh, although, I mean, it wasn't uh, as as cheap when I was started to be able to afford to buy the odd picture uh, as it was in the 1960s, where it, where it was kind of valueless, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, almost valueless. Uh, it, it, it was still, compared with anything else, something that one could afford to buy. And, um, it, it, and, and, and so I started to form a collection, really because I loved it. And it was because it was something that I could actually afford. <laughs> it's just honestly I, I it's such a I, I find it extraordinary how pre-raphaelitism as an art movement um it, it, it's hard to believe that so many years ago it was as you said it was perceived as worthless it was perceived as valueless and then now it pre-raphaelitism is everywhere and there's been such a boom and in interest surrounding pre-raphaelitism um both academically and publicly I think I think that has, I mean, but you, but you see, the thing is, is it's still regarded as a bit of a, a side issue in art. Yeah. You know, the mainstream art critics don't really get it. And I mean, in America, for example, I mean, people don't really understand, um, mm-hmm. you know, what the Pirapolites were all about. But, um, but, but, it, but uh, the thing is, you see, the, it all comes back to everything with art about, frankly, the, you know, the art market and art dealers... Um, and so if you get a perfectly terrible artist like Basquiat, uh, who is absolutely <laughs> useless, um, you know, but, but you, you get people, the art dealers are able to give him a backstory that seems fashionable and that it seems that then, and there are loads of them and they keep coming up on the market. But there are very few great Victorian pictures now that, you know, make the headlines because they, they're all either in public collections, thank goodness, or they're in one or two private collections, and they never come up. They're not for sale. So you don't, it, it, it's a funny thing that, you know, with the Impressionists, with modern art, with, you know, say any one of the major modern artists, they're always coming up, you know, and so they, they get headlines. And Victorian art doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but and, and that, and that it's, it, it always intrigues me, you know, that how, how you know, people get completely frankly conned with modern art in some cases and I mean look at look at what happened all that business uh last year with I mean well I'm not going to go into it but I mean the the, the, the modern art dealers you know are really re- really they are 
just dealers. Mm-hmm. They could be selling mm-hmm. anything. And pre-Raphaelite art is, is, is rare. And, 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 but, I mean, I, I think that explains to a degree, you know, why. There's another thing that I, I think um, people, some people find difficult, some art critics find difficult, which is that so many of the pre-Raphaelites were also involved with decoration of churches. And some people find that that tricky. Maybe, you know, you, I, I was looking at one particular art critic who absolutely knows the pre-Raphaelites and could be nameless. But I actually looked into his background and he was at a Catholic school. And so you think, hang on a moment, that might explain a bit, you know, mm. ran down the throat and the wrong way. And, um, you know, but I, I firmly believe, you know, that, that the pre-Raphaelites and the greatest of the pre-Raphaelites are right up there with um, all of the great painters. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really nice way of rounding that up, uh, really, because the next question that I wanted to ask you was, uh, if you were to define pre-Raphaelitism as an art movement, how would you define that in your own words? Um, because it's quite hard to pin down pre-Raphaelitism in a respect, isn't it? Uh, but at the same time, um, there is this, you know, almost conventional shopping list that people have in their minds when they're identifying pre-Raphaelite work. I guess it's to do, obviously, with the the, the original idea of going back to um, nature and record, you know, recording nature as in in every kind of detail, which in itself is a bit unfashionable today, um, because most artists couldn't even begin to paint it the way that, say, Millet did. Um, and uh, but but um, I mean, as the movement moved on and everything, you know that that sort of changed. And um, Millet, as we know, became um, sort of in, in some cases, obviously more commercial in quotes. And then in, in other cases, like with the Scottish pictures he painted later, that they were anything but that, and they were really very personal and really, I, I think, really absolutely extraordinary. Um, but, you know, the thing is that the pre-Raphaelite label if one's being strict about it, really only applies to a very, very few years. Um, it, it, you know, you really, it's the early days with Rossetti and Maddox-Brown and you know, Helmut Hunt and all that. And it, it, it's not, that there aren't that many really pure pre-Raphaelite pictures. Um, and the, the term has become now very generic. So Burne Jones, who was not a pre-Raphaelite, is considered to be a pre-Raphaelite. You know, an artist like Waterhouse, you know, who obviously is very late Victorian, um, he's considered to be a pre-Raphaelite. Um, but the actual pre-Raphaelitism, if one was going to, um, I don't know how you would really s- sort of really say what what is the generic look of a pre-Raphaelite mm-hmm. picture. But I suppose really what you're saying is it's Victorian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and the very specific um, artists like the sort of Burne Joneses or the Waterhouses, they they did. They were hugely influenced by Millet and, and 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 the other early ones, but they went on in their way to develop their own, particularly Burne Jones, his own his own world. I mean, one of the questions I always ask myself um, is when you look at some of the late Burne Joneses, and then this shows how difficult it is to answer the question about what would, what is how how would you actually define them what a pre-Raphaelite picture looks like, because in the latter part of Burne Jones's life, you know, he was painting things that, um, I mean, we know Picasso saw. We know Picasso was a huge fan of, when he was a young, very young man of Burne Jones. And in fact, he went to Paris to have a look at um, and saw three 
um, Burne Jones pictures, and he he was on the way to try and meet Burne Jones in Rottingdean, but that never happened. Um, and and if you look at say something like the fall of Lucifer, um, you, you 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 see the beginning of the Picasso blue period, and you see the beginning of a sort of two-dimensional, maybe, cubism. If you look at the drawings for the uh, fall of Lucifer in the British Museum, you sort of see that Burne Jones was going into a very different area. And I often wonder what would have happened um, if Burne Jones had been born, say, 10 years later and had lived through the First World War, because it was the First World War where everybody lost their young, where so many people lost their young men that that was the moment where people said, oh, come on, this Victorian this stuff is junk. It's all maidens, you know, and knights and thing. And this, how irrelevant this is into the modern world. But then you look at some of Burne Jones's work and you think, what would he have made of, say, something like the First World War? And I think the answer would have been that he would have come up with something pretty extraordinary. Mm. Because you see that in, in, in some of his work. If you, if you look at the Perseus series, which I once saw, out of its frame, uh, out of its frame, in, in, in one of them, they could have been painted last week <laughs> by a really great artist, you know. Look, look, look. I mean, and that's kind of where the movement went. So going right back to the beginning of it, of course, it was always about, you know, being an exact, exact um, re recording of, of nature and being literally pre-Raphael. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny that you say that about... Um... The, the, the whole what if um, and how would the pre-Raphaelites respond to, you know, the, the world that we live in today and how would that have impacted or um, informed their work? And it's always really interesting to think about, um, to, to think about positioning pre-Raphaelites or the actual pre-Raphaelite artists um, in the modern day world and how they would have received that. Um, but yeah. I, think, I, I think it is. I mean, you when you see the late Miles of Scotland, um, you, you, you begin to see that he was thinking, I mean, painting, I mean, I'm lucky enough to own Chill October, um, which he painted by the railway line, you know, and in, in, in really pretty terrible conditions with trains going by. Um, and I mean, that, that is not the work of somebody who is um, uh, painting for, you know, money, frankly. I mean, he's painting something for himself and there's something very extraordinary in that picture, mm -hmm. which I guess is why Van Gogh liked him or liked it, you know. Um, it's it, it, they are a, a strange movement to the sense that they are considered to be sort of slightly outside of the mainstream. But I am absolutely convinced that um, you know that they that um, among them there the, were the really superb artists. There were the more imitative ones, of course. Um, I mean, you, you 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 have to. I mean, much as I like Arthur Hughes, you know, he wasn't an innovator, but. Mm -hmm certainly Millet and, and Byrne Jones were, and, and Rossetti, you, you know, again, he, he was, uh, he sort of ploughed his own furrow, and I kind of actually prefer his chalk drawings often, you know, to, to, to more, more than the finished versions of them. But mm -hmm. then what would be the, would you say, and I'm interested to see what you answer, would, if you were asked to say, and, and because it comes back to the question of what is pre-rap like, what would be the one painting that you would say that for most people, if they knew about it, would sum up the pre-Raphaelite movement? Oh, now you're testing me. Um, well, I was actually going to quiz you, you on... You know. <laughs> um, well, 
I was going to quiz you on your work um, that you have in your collection of Dante Gabriel's is a vision of Fiametta. Yes, Fiametta, funnily enough, we, we parted with in the end. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I fear um, because I had an opportunity to buy what I think is a really great version of Proserpine. Oh, OK. And, and so I, I thought with one thing, and Fiametta, lovely as it is, um, I, I thought that to have a really great version of Proserpine was a, was a good swap. Oh, well, um, fair enough. But but I, I funnily enough, think that, that Proserpine probably is the image that most people would say, oh, gosh, yes, that's a pre-Raphaelite painting. Yes, it's the one where I know this sounds, um, you know, this, this sounds a little bit of unprofessional of me, but say if someone was to type pre-Raphaelitism in Google, um, that image essentially is what comes up, isn't it? It's, it's the classic yes. image of... Uh, of Jane Morris, of of you know in yes. the, the lustrous image of her, that the flowing hair, the luscious lips. There's something about this ideal, this this Victorian feminine ideal that the Preaphelites constructed, um, is what makes or what has defined Preaphelite art for so long. I think. Yes, it has. It has. But of course, actually, um, it isn't really about um languid women and all of that. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at, say, Millet, I mean, he, he, he never really painted that. Um, oh, exactly. I suppose, I suppose the closest, Mariana might be close to that, but that's not really even in, like that. I mean, Rossetti took it that way. Yeah. Um, but but um, it's going to be very interesting because the Tate exhibition of Rossetti's, uh, you know, coming up now, is going to have uh, my version of Proserpine um, up against theirs. Oh, um, really? I, 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 and I'd love to love to see how it how they look mm. um because my my suspicion is is that the that my one was is the one where it got damaged on you know it was on its way to whoever bought it and he cut the head out of it and then um relayed that on canvas and um so the key bit of it he relayed and, and then he repainted the rest the body and everything um and and i think um, I, I'm pretty sure that the head of my one is earlier than the Tate version of it, but and it'll be it'll be really interesting to see um, them side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really looking forward to that exhibition. Um, yeah. We have recorded an episode uh, that will be um, that will be aired later on, nearer to the exhibition opening. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that, especially with what uh, Carol Jackby was hinting at of what to expect at the yes. exhibition. Yes, yes. Well, it's very very exciting but of course then of course but my interest in victorian art goes right across i mean it is it isn't just purely pre-raphaelites i mean mm-hmm. clearly i've got some latins and i've got you know, but i mean where where i find Mine to be hugely ahead of the curve um is in something which is a picture that isn't i suppose you wouldn't really call it a painting because it isn't um but he did when he was um on the fateful holiday where um with john ruskin up in scotland um, Ruskin decided that he wanted Millet to come up with designs for a Gothic church that would challenge Butterfield's All Saints Margaret Street, which was the big talking point at the time because it was so revolutionary. And um, he came up with a whole series of drawings of um, windows and um, features for the church, of which I don't think really any really survived much. I mean, apart from a drawing that I got, and I think there's one other royal version somewhere, um, but it was, I don't think it was done on that, that trip, but the others um, don't appear to have survived. But this thing um, of mine, it, it 
it's Art Nouveau, completely anticipated, extraordinary thing. Mm. Um, and and um, these angels and embraces forming the window. And um, I actually, in the end, built the window. <laughs> um, but but I got somebody to carve it. But it, it, it's um, it, it, that it's that sort of thing that you know make makes one think. I mean, I'm lending that to an exhibition in Italy, um, which is coming up next year, um, which is also going to have quite a lot from the Burne Jones Church in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it's it's really fascinating to me where they go when they're not necessarily on duty as what you might call in quotes pre-Raphaelite painters. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about your collection then, um, because your collection, uh, your collection in pre-Raphaelite, in the pre-Raphaelite realm of research, and you know, is is famous. I think it was was it was it last exhibited two thousand and three. Was it a whole yes. exhibition yes, at the it Royal? Was. That was at the Royal Academy. Yes, it uh, was at the Royal Academy. Um, how many works the... at, at the time did you have? Was it over three hundred? Gosh, I could, you know, I can't even remember. It was about yes, it probably was around about that. Um, but they're all sorts of bits, but, but all sorts of bits and pieces, you know. Mm. I mean, like quite a lot of De Morgan China and things and, and that sort of thing. Um, but um, it, the collections changed around a bit um, since then. As I said, Fiametta, sadly, I mean, I, I did part company with because um, I really did want a really great version of Proserpine. And that was the only way I could afford it. And we've got the Burn Jones, De- uh, Burn Jones Depths of the Sea um, that I've got a copy of behind me here. Um, and I did that, notice that, that over your shoulder, actually. That, that's that's come in. It's the original, the, the oil version of that. Uh, that was at the tape last year. Um, and um, I also got Love Among the Ruins, the original version of that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, um, you know, one has to sometimes, you know, sadly, you know, one has to kind of finance these things. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So um, um, I, I've been doing a, a little bit. I've been also getting, uh, you know, getting a few odd bits and pieces. It's, um, but anyway. I was going to ask you if you can, if it's possible, pick a favourite piece of work that you currently own or have owned. Um, I, yes, it I, might be a hard thing to choose or, or not, um, but do you have a favourite? Yes, I do, actually. It's a very small little picture. It's the Mille Sophie Gray. Yes. I mean, now if that if that isn't, I mean, if you just just looked at the head of that and you took away just the dress, which is obviously Victorian, you looked at the head of that, you'd say, "Oh my God, who painted that?" And it would be. And there, there is a funny, funny word that um, an old art dealer friend of mine, David Mason, used to say. He said there are some pictures. Um, from all sort of walks of the art world, which are anybody's picture. Um, and I suppose you could say Flaming June by Lord Leighton is that, you know. Mm-hmm. But that little head by by Mille, um, when I uh, show it to people or this, that and the other, people just say, I mean, I can't believe that was painted in 1858. You know, they, they, it's just so, so extraordinary. And, and it's only a little thing. It's tiny. It's... Uh, smaller than the screen I'm looking at, well, about the same mm-hmm. size. And um, it, it, and, but yet, for me, that proves that he's, you know, the master of the lot. Then I think I'd probably put, put um, uh, next to that, I think I'd probably put The Depths of the Sea. Oh, because, yeah. That's I a mean, lovely that's such, one. A, such an extraordinary idea. Um, and I know, that, you know, Burne-Jones was obsessed with mermaids, but 
you know, if you look at that mermaid's face, it's an enigma. Yeah. And of course, there's a wonderful version of that. There's a wonderful drawing of that uh, in uh, in the Lady Leave Gallery in Port, Port Sunlight. Um, but it's it's very very interesting take on on everything Victorian. I don't know. Um, we, we, those are probably the two I'd pick out. I mean, they're two very good choices, I must say. Um, but yes, both of them are absolutely beautiful. Uh, are there any works, though, that you would like to get your hands on and add to your collection? Or are there any works outside of your collection that really do stand out to you? Oh, my goodness me. I mean, we could be here all night if we're <laughs> going to do that. Uh, I mean, not strictly Victorian. I mean, one of the, um, I mean, one, one of the things that, you know, is a little sad is, is that... Um, that Ferdinand Lubayeril is going now to the Met on loan, you know, which was, um, they had an export license um, stop on that. And I offered um, to match it, you know, and, and, and keep it in partnership with the Ashmolean, but that was, um, that the owner didn't want to do that. So it's gone on loan to the Met. And that's a picture I would love to have, really, mm -hmm. because it, it is, it really, it's home really ought to be somewhere like the Ashmolean, um, you know, because it's sort of very, I mean, it's such an early melee, but but a really important one. I mean, of course. I mean, you know, what, what, I mean, there are, there are so many. I mean, if you look at the Holman Hunt, you know, our English coasts, you know, um, uh, the Harling Shepherd, all those yeah. I'd love to have. <laughs> but they're but they're better off where they are. Yeah, and, and I, I I I like it. You know, that people come and see my collection. We we've got some um, Burne Joneses now hanging in the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in the bit that's open all day now and anybody oh, can wander brilliant. doesn't doesn't cost you anything to go there you just wander in and have a look that's um, brilliant and i'm hoping to use the theater royal a little bit now in the future as a place for exhibitions i'm looking into the kind of how how we would how we could do that and whether the space really allows it but i think it does mm -hmm. um so you know it, I, I do i do love sharing them i think it's it's great i mean i i mean we've got several of them going out again on loan this year and i love you know groups of people coming around to have a look at them at home they're not all absolutely home, actually, but they're all some of them in other places and I've, I've got a lovely series of of um of the arthur and avalon tapestries you know the um burn jones um, and that there i'm i'm hoping that we're going to have uh, they're going to be able to have a permanent home uh, at kelmscott which oh be, yes, we're 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 sort of hoping that's going to be possible, and looking into it at the moment. Um, they're they're going off to Italy any minute, but um, you know, but those sort of things are um, probably not best kept at home, you know, because mm. they, they need to be out of the light and all that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, not to be cheeky or anything, but the next time you do host a group, um, consider the Pre-Aphrolite podcast team <laughs> to be your next group to come of and visit course. your collection. Love, love to, love to. Yeah. Oh, it'd be I wonderful love. to come around and have a look at um, have a look at what you've got. No, we we love it. I mean, it's uh, we have quite a lot of groups go around. Quite a lot of people, actually, quite a lot of American um, academic um, institutions and things come around. We normally have half a dozen a year. Um, uh, but but I, I love it if they're genuinely interested. And then, of course, a lot of students, you know, who maybe have got a particular interest or something, if they, if they know that I've got something. Um, and that was the joy of the Royal Academy, because although yeah. the collection has moved on a bit, uh, people, there is a catalogue that does say pretty much what we've got. Yeah. 
I, I would I, again I would love to come and view your collection one day absolutely <laughs> um if you're all willing to accept us yeah. um around your your house at some point um so another question then um has or would you say periaphylitism has that influenced your theatre work or has there ever been any instances where your two worlds have kind of collided if you will not really not really because the subjects that I've taken I mean they're I, I was right for the particular subject because I'm very story driven. So, mm-hmm. um, and and I haven't really ever taken. I suppose the closest might have been the woman in white, but then we didn't. Um, again, none of the imagery really was um, based with the designer. Didn't really take anything Victorian specifically. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I mean, no, I, I'm not not really. Okay. Um, I'm also curious as to whether you've been involved in, because um, you have kind of touched upon it um, throughout this podcast episode, whether you've been uh, involved in any recent conservation work for any other works or have you, uh, or you are, in, are you in the process of loaning any pieces out? I know you mentioned Italy. Well, yes. I mean, as I said, there's several things going to the mm-hmm. Rossetti exhibition um, and the uh, tapestries are going to Kelmscott, hopefully. Um, so that they, there's normally... I would say at any given time, probably half a dozen of the best pictures are on loan. I mean, uh, there were a lot went to the um, Burne Jones exhibition at the Tate. Quite a, you know, odd one, or quite a few went to the Millet exhibition before. Um, so yes, I mean they're they're they're, they're revolving. If you if you were to go around this year, you might find that a few of the best ones are not there. <laughs> um, but uh, I but as I say, I mean I think it's important to to lend them if one can yeah absolutely um so my last question then uh because again i i could be talking to you about periaphylite art all day um but i have been deliberately uh strict with myself on what questions to ask you and i want to end this episode with asking you why do you think periaphylitism is so fundamental to our understanding of of our history of art history and why is it so important that um we see this revival of periaphylite art. Well, I think it's a huge insight into uh, Victorian Britain and into the whole uh, movement there that was reacting against the Industrial Revolution. And of course, the somewhat idealized world that the some of the pre-Raphaelites um, you know, uh, offered, as well as the sort of morality element of it, with sort of Holman Hunt. But um, you know, it 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 is that, that that feeling that what they were doing was rebelling against um, the machine mm-hmm. and the smoke and the factories, and to that extent, it's a it's a fascinating insight on, on one level into how uh, the artistic community in Victorian Britain was thinking. Um, but on the on the other, as I say, I think it's I think it's important one considers the artists individually rather than lumping them all into one thing and just saying that they are pre, pre-Raphaelite, because that actual pre-Raphaelite moment was very short-lived. It was only really, what, four years? The most, really, Yeah, uh, I, I guess. Um, and the, the label has become generic for the whole of the Victorian movement of a certain kind. I mean, I'm not talking about sort of Victorian social paintings or something like that. Uh, or arguably even sort of Lord Leighton. Um, well, he obviously wasn't pre-Raphaelite at all. But the, I, I think, I think what it is 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 that it is also about beauty, and uh, it may be sometimes it's an idealised beauty, um, but 
it, it's something that the very best of Victorian paintings, the very best, does appeal to people who don't necessarily understand the complexity of, you know, the, the depth of some other areas of art, but are really taken by the fact that these are beautifully painted pictures by yeah. people who really, really knew how to paint. That's the thing. They they really, really knew um, that the technique was fantastic. I mean, I, uh, I Burne Jones is one of the greatest draftsmen of all time. And, and Millet, if you look at some of his drawings, are just extraordinary. No, absolutely. And I, th I think there is something beautiful in appreciating a piece of work that, um, you know, when, when you think of the hours and the, the days, the weeks, the months that they must have dedicated to each intricate piece of detail, even if it's down to a pattern on a rug or um, the wisp of hair coming off one of the women's faces, you know, there's the intricate details you really need to appreciate. Well, something that somebody said to me the other day, um, which was the, <laughs> made me laugh actually, that um, Millet, for example, his, his attention to detail was such that in some of the portraits he has of girls, you know, and the girls' heads, he even manages to actually make their hair look greasy <laughs> because it, they would have been then, yeah. you know. And so the, the whole thing about the idealised Victorian look is not necessarily the case because sometimes, you know, they were painted in a very, very realistic way. Um, but I don't know, at the end of the day, you know, with art, you've got to say, do you like it or not? Do you actually genuinely like it? Um, I love it. I think the best of the pre-Raphaelites, um, I, I wouldn't replace them with anything else, not the very, very best, much as I love all sorts of things. And I don't just collect pre-Raphaelites, by the way. Um, but um, it, it, for me, a really great Victorian painting that also takes me back to the fact that when I was a teenager, they were so unfashionable. And there's a little bit of rebellion as well that I, I quite like. Maybe I associate the fact that they were rebellious themselves. And um, so um, I don't know. I can't, I can't really put it into words and I can't put it into music either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that kind of sums up and rounds up the episode beautifully. Um, okay. Just appreciating the, you know, the, the essence of what periphalitism is. And I think you've rounded that in such beautiful, yes. in such a beautiful yeah. way. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the collection sometime. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to hold you on to that, um, Andrew. I'm holding no, you on to my no invitation. Problem, no problem at all. <laughs> well, on behalf of the podcast team, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come to talk to me um, and, you know, recording an episode for the podcast and supporting um, the pre aphrodite Society. And it truly has been a pleasure and certainly a career high of mine, must I say. Well, thank you very much. You're very kind. And lastly, I just wanted to thank the listeners as well. Uh, thank you as always for tuning in and remaining loyal to us. And we look forward to seeing you at the next episode of the podcast. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.